Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for May 7th, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, tonight on the show, we're excited to welcome Dr. Nicholas Dagenbloom uh, to discuss his new book, the Great American Transit Disaster, where he looks at um, transit policy since World War II in America, a lot of different cities, um, and will and where you know America could have done a much better job in places. But we'll discuss that book and, and transit policy in general with him here in about 20 minutes. But until then, um, we're going to start off talking about Texas. We had planned to talk some politics about Texas, and we will. But also, uh, there's been a string of tragedies. Um, I I don't want to be remiss and forget all the ones that happened in Georgia, too, this week as well. But in in Texas, um, just this weekend, there was a shooting, a mass shooting at an outlet mall in Allen, Texas, that I believe um, seven people, um, you know, tragically died in. And then this morning, a car um, was used as a weapon and killed roughly seven or eight people. And then that comes on the heels of last weekend um, because of an uh, infant trying to sleep and someone say, don't don't shoot your gun to wake our baby up. A whole family got killed last weekend. So something is not going on good in Texas, but you know what? It's not going on good in America. So I don't want to just put it all on Texas because it's a lot of places. Um, Catherine, what are kind of your thoughts on these multiple incidents in the same state in the past roughly seven days? Well, you can't help but wonder about their, um, I think they have a new open carry law or not, maybe not that uh, new. You just can't help but wonder about some of these laws and um, the, you know, rampant availability of all kinds of guns. And then you just have to wonder what's wrong with people or what's wrong with the, with our society that we feel, I mean, that situation with the, you know, woman who asked the neighbor to be quiet because her baby was sleeping. I mean, that just seems, um, you know, what what prompts someone to, to use a gun in those situations? It's very troubling and um, it's it's very difficult to understand and 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 heartbreaking obviously so i, I don't know uh, i don't know what we can say but but please uh try to find our, our leaders need to find some some uh pathway to getting this resolved we all need to work on it but our leaders need to find some ways it's it's too frustrating and too heartbreaking Yes. Now, Tim, um, obviously, I think if you got rid of a lot of the unfettered access to certain types of guns, you'd see a reduction. But to me, it feels deeper than that. It's also kind of an anger management um, situation as well. What's your take on what has happened this past week? Well, yeah, I think because of the schisms in our country, uh, there is more anger than there was. But but I still, still, still think that the chief problem is the just widespread proliferation of guns. We can quote statistics all day to back that up. 20 years ago, there were 295 million people in this country. There were 200 million privately owned weapons in this country. 2% of them 
were AR-15s. Fast forward 20 years, with 45 million more people at 340 million, we have doubled the amount of guns that we had 20 years ago, 400 million, that's about 50% of the privately owned firearms in the whole world, and 25% of those guns are now AR-15. Man, that, that's, you know, 100 million AR-15s running around out there with, with the kinds of people that are, that are doing this stuff. It's only going to get worse. And it's happening everywhere, guys. It's happening in malls. It's happening in grocery stores. It's happening at outdoor concerts, in churches, in houses, in schools. There's no safe place anymore. We have got to get a handle on this. And we seem incapable, especially at the federal level, of even sitting down in a room and talking about it anymore. So, you know, I, I don't know I don't know what there's an answer is if nobody asks any questions. There we are. Yeah. And at hospitals or outside of hospitals and um mm-hmm. McDonalds and Malta, Georgia. Name any word this yeah. past week. Four people it didn't even need coverage. Um, because it's, and that's the scary thing; these things aren't even getting the same coverage because it's just becoming routine. Now, I did see, you know, people after the incident with the car going, "Well, what are we going to do? Ban all the SUVs?" And it's like you've kind of lost the plot if you're not at least searching for answers and you want to use this incident to win some kind of argument on guns. Uh, you know, used to the Republicans talk about mental health, and I think we do have mental health issues that are not addressed in this country. But we want to then win a point on a gun argument, not talk about them mental health as a possibility, um, where you just want to say, hey, guns are off the hook now. I really think that's sad if that becomes the debate. And I think for a lot of the more shock, you know, type po- uh, Republican politicians, that may be the move. What do you think, Catherine? Well, a lot of countries have mental health problems, and they don't have the kind of, you know, gun violence that we do. Uh, there's mental health problems all over the world, um, and we're the ones with the with the problem with the guns. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the letter from the open letter from our mayor, Mayor Dickens, but he's, he, he was honest about it. He said, it's the gun. Like, it's the gun. Yeah. Like, if you didn't have a gun, you wouldn't be able to, your response to some kind of mental breakdown wouldn't be to shoot everybody. It would be some other kind of um, response. It might still be violent, but it wouldn't be as um, as horrifying and as uh as um, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't involve killing people. It might just I don't know, but yeah, it, we've got to admit that it's mental health and it's the guns. It's both. It's okay to be yeah, both. I, I I'm gonna you know say something at the risk of sounding a bit un-American. I do think guns are a major contributing factor, but there's something about a, a decent maybe all of us, but a decent part of the population that just seems to do the worst things with things. It just seems like when we have drug abuse issues, they're worse. When we have anger issues, they're worse. When we handle guns, we mishandle them worse. Um, Social media, we may find the the lowest depths of it. And, and of course, a gun being such a violent tool, um, that just exacerbates it that much more. Tim, am I making any sense here that it seems like at times Americans, you know, just use things in the worst way? Uh, sure, but the problem with with using guns in the worst way is uh, uh, some of them are designed for combat, for the military. They're not no. designed to, for, for private citizens to buy them. 
crazy people walk into gun stores and get away with buying them. Uh, Criminals don't have to get illegal guns. They can just get legal ones now. I mean, you know, anybody can get a Miners can open carry in in some state. I mean, come on. We the, the problem goes back to the early 70s when the National Rifle Association was taken over at its annual meeting uh, in what they called the Cincinnati Revolt. I mentioned it before, by the gun industry. Overnight, they went from being what they were founded to be, which was a gun safety group, to being the political arm of the gun industry. What does the gun industry want to do? Sell guns. What does the gun industry have to use as their hammer with politicians? Lots of money and fear of dismissal from their jobs being voted out of office. So one political party is totally held hostage by the gun industry in this country, and they don't want Anything gun done, the gun industry don't. I ain't just talking about the guns. I'm talking about anything associated with it. They don't want anything done. And they're getting their way. And now how are we going to get around that? Well, I don't have an answer. Well, you, in this political environment, you don't. But but I go ahead and tell you, anytime you hear about addiction issues, the first step uh, – Killing is admitting you have a problem. There's a lot of folks that just don't want to admit we have a problem. Uh, you know that that we, you know, have found a more violent society um, than really any any nation with our education profile uh, and um, and our wealth and other means on Earth. Uh, and it's just such oh, a yeah. sad, sad place to be. Um, well, let's let's stay in Texas and let's. You know, we are a political show. That's what we do. Um, we talk about electoral politics first and foremost. And um, let me kind of set this up. If you look at this 2024 Senate map, there are a lot of races that are probably going to turn out just like they are now. If a Republican holds a seat, the Republican will continue to hold the seat. Democrat holds a seat, a Democrat will continue to hold the seat. There's a few places where I think the Republicans have – a better pickup opportunity, and then there's maybe one race, Arizona, where the Democrats have a chance to upgrade from their former Democrat. Um, but if you look at the map, there's just not a lot of pickup opportunities for Democrats. But this week, I think there may be a race that the Democrats can look at to see if they can turn this into a pickup opportunity. Ted Cruz is running for re-election. He won in 2018. Um, he won it, even though it seemed like nobody really liked him just because Texas had been so Republican. And over time, it is slowly trending more to the middle. And so you're thinking, well, 2024, if the Democrats could find a decent recruit, maybe they could make a race of this. I wasn't really deeply searching, nor was I privy to who they might get. But this past week, they did get a recruit, and maybe about as good a recruit as you can get in Texas in that of Texas congressman from north of Dallas, Colin Allred. He he actually represents a suburban district, a district that just a few um, Sessions ago was um, represented by Pete Sessions, a Republican, but it has flipped from red to blue recently. So this is a kind of um, district that has to trend for Texas to trend statewide. And so Colin Allred knows one of these kind of places. Um, Tim, I'm going to start out with you. What is your thoughts on the prospects of Colin Allred's campaign? Well, you're right. He's a top-tier opponent, the the 32nd District. You described it, northeast of Dallas and uh, a a little part of the city and and mostly suburbs. And he has a great um, story, a a good biography. He's a a very good-looking candidate uh, on the stump, and he will will certainly – give uh, Ted Cruz a run for his money. 
of course, in Cruz's favor, he's the incumbent. That's always something that helps, uh, especially with fundraising. Uh, we got to also remember that unlike 2018, uh, 2024's presidential election, and unless something very bizarre happens, they'll vote for Donald Trump if he's the nominee, and he could actually help Cruz some there. Um, And I did mention Cruz will have a lot more money, which means uh, attack ads. Um, You you know, David, Cruz won by 2.6%. Everybody talked about how close it was, and I guess it is for Texas, but man... That that's over two hundred thousand votes. Now that that's the closest Senate election since like I don't know nineteen seventy eight. And the other thing I want to mention here before everybody gets real excited: no Democrat has won any statewide election in Texas since nineteen ninety four. So as much as I'd love to say Cruz is absolutely going down, this is going to be a hard, very hard race to. To, to win, but I'm I'm encouraged by who we got running. Yeah, but Tim, I will say this: when I said it, I was talking about when you look at how bleak this map is. There's just no good opportunities, and I'm not saying this is a great one, but uh, when you compare that to flipping, it, you know, name I'm, five to other states, I, I, this one I'm gonna say is it's in the good. game at least. I'm not yeah. going to say great either, but I'll say good. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a good opportunity now. Yeah, when you heard about Colin Allred announcing for this race, and I guess then probably looked up more about his bio, what was your thoughts? I have to pretty much agree with Tim. It's going to take a lot of money and a lot of boots on the ground to uh, beat Ted Cruz and to – uh, Mr. Allred win. I don't think it's undoable. Uh, I think, you know, we've seen some, you know, improvements, like like we said, with the, you know, margin that Ted Cruz uh, won by, um, the popularity and uh, success of Beto O'Rourke, even though he didn't win, he hasn't won, but he's really um, been an enthusiastic and uh, motivating uh, candidate, and hopefully he'll he'll help. Um, but it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of boots on the ground and a lot of um, surrogates out, you know, running around Texas talking about Mr. Allred and you know, and you know, again, a lot of money. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll get back to this race. In just a little bit, and I have a feeling we're going to talk about it many times over the next year and a half as well. But right now, we're ready to discuss some American transit policy with our guest, Dr. Nicholas Dagan-Bloom. Welcome, Dr. Bloom. Uh, Good afternoon. Yeah. Well, um, well, Dr. Bloom, we, we know you've got a new book out, but before we get into that, just tell us about your background in all of these areas of study. Okay, so um, I've written quite a few books on urban institutions, uh, whether it was public housing, um, the JFK airport, and now mass transit. So I look at what happens to institutions over time. That's, uh, that's my interest, particularly ones that serve city residents. Yes, well, I didn't, when I booked you, of course, I didn't know that um, you did all that work on JFK airport. So the rest of the show, we're going to talk about why my flight to New York and then to Italy costs more to JFK than LaGuardia since I'm flying from America to Italy through JFK. No, I'm kidding. Um, seriously, yeah. uh, let's get into the book, um, you yeah. know, the, Ameri- the Great Transit Disaster, which is funny. I think of the Great American Screen Machine. I think of the Great American Bash. The Great America Ballpark. Usually that means something grand. I take it for your title with disaster. This is not usually the great, same Great American theme we're used to. No, I guess it's a form of irony in some way, right? Which is that, I mean, we, we really hit it out of the ballpark, so to speak, um, which is that while other countries around the world have found 
you know, some kind of balance between transit and automobility, we basically have doubled down. We took what well, we were a world leader in mass transit 100 years ago, and we threw all of that away uh, pretty much, and then we become all entirely reliant on uh, the automobile. And that, to me, is, you know, a, a true disaster. Yes. Well, um, what what do you think is the motivating factor about why we threw that away? Because I do hear people sometimes say, I just don't like to ride mass transit, and it's hard for them maybe to put a finger on a reason why. Sometimes they do. In your research, what did you find is the reason a lot of people just don't ride it? So, I mean, it, it goes back quite a ways. Um, I mean, there are a number of decisions that, that were made a hundred years ago and more recently to basically not stabilize the systems that we had in the United States. You have to remember that a hundred years ago, almost all American transit was a private enterprise. Uh, it was run by basically private transit operators. And as they began to lose riders, uh, they, um, it, by the way, I'm, is my sound okay? Yes. You're, it's excellent. Okay. Oh, ours is. Okay. Okay. Um, basically, as the ridership began to go away with automobiles, basically almost every city had a choice, which was, you know, to step in, either subsidize or improve the transit systems they had, take them over with a public ownership, or to basically let these private transit companies collapse. And pretty much in every American city, they let the, tr- the private transit systems collapse. So had American cities chosen much earlier to basically stabilize the systems they had, we'd have more transit today and more interesting transit and more options. But we lost so much that rebuilding is hard. And so back to your point, I mean, so many Americans uh, basically have almost no experience at all with mass transit. And so, yeah, it is hard to get people to (laughs) try it if it doesn't run through their neighborhoods. They've never even seen it. Uh, that's something that's very hard to come back from. Plus, the other, another factor was, aside from not investing in transit companies, another factor was um, zoning, right? So it's very hard for um, a transit companies, private or public, to serve the very, you know, spread out, low-density cities we have. And so even when you put in transit, getting a system – you know, robust enough to make people want to leave their cars behind is very hard. You know, you're basically asking people very often to, you know, two, three times the amount of time uh, to go on transit as opposed to driving. So we do have an uphill, (laughs) since we fell so far from what we had, uh, we definitely have an uphill battle. Yes, and I think you're on to something with Americans wanting things immediate and and that waiting is just not – uh, something that a lot yeah. of Americans are, are good at. And, and, of course, we know that the American attention span is decreasing, so I worry that in the future, even though other things may be getting more progressive, that need for immediacy may never uh, fit well with um, transit systems. Right. The only way to have immediacy with transit is you have to have a lot of it, <laughs> right? You know, that you walk out, and there are plenty of places in the world where – you know, you walk out and, you know, there's a train or a bus or whatever coming, you know, every couple of minutes. So you don't have to basically trade off as much time as you do in the U.S. In the U.S., the big problem is you have to trade off so much time uh, to basically be a transit rider in almost every American city. So you yes. have to get what? to that point where transit's competitive is very hard. Yes. Well, I've got one more question before I pass it to Catherine and Tim. And um, that is just about how, um, and, and this may be a little bit different than the thesis of your book, but I have a feeling you, you've studied things like this, why some cities won't put major destinations along the transit system. And I'm going to give you an example. Um, in Atlanta, my wife and I just eight days ago went to the Janet Jackson concert. Taylor Swift was also in town. They had this the biggest number of riders they've had since the Super Bowl in one weekend mm-hmm. because you could ride the transit system right down to Mercedes Stadium, 
uh, State Farm Arena. It's very convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they that all went around with everyone riding. Yeah. Yes, and then and then when I um, went to Los Angeles a few years ago, I noticed they were. I, I forgot if they opened. They opened so far, or they were just about to open the most expensive stadium in the world. And I noticed that the only way you could get there was by bus, walk, or car. There was not a transit station that was, you know, readily accessible to this two have to take billion a dollar bus. stadium. Yeah. So, so tell, yeah. and I'm sure there's other cities that fit that SoFi model. Why do cities not plan these major destinations around the transit system better? Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, L.A. is maybe an ally in some ways because there are a lot of cities that have light rail lines that connect them. I think of Baltimore and Seattle and so many cities that have that. The L.A. example is, the, I think, the, the Green Line or C Line, right? And that does have a shuttle bus that goes from the, the line to the stadium. But you're right, it's not direct. And the reason for that, in part, is that line was planned long ago. <laughs> the, you know, the SoFi Stadium comes later. It's expensive to extend, you know, uh, a line just for a stadium. And remember, how many days, you know, a year do you need that capacity, you don't need it that much. So when transit planners are looking at destinations sometimes, they have to, you know, basically do a return on investment, right? And so, yeah, I mean, everyone's going to Taylor Swift that day or whatever, but most of the days there's not people going to a stadium. So it just varies a great deal by city. If the, I think if the, the stadium and the, right, the, the rail system were planned at the same time, then they actually – there's a lot of coordination. I think of Baltimore, right, with their ballparks and the light rail right there. There's a very close coordination because they were basically developed very closely at the same time. Where there's a kind of break, right, between when the rail line was developed, like in L.A., and then the stadium, right, then you don't get that sort of coordination. And then the other side is that that coordination has to be balanced against real users, right? Are there really, you know, how many home games, you know, like a football stadium, something like that, right? How many you know, baseballs better, but you know football stadiums not so much, right? The other thing is if you look at SoFi and all these stadiums, right? They have tons of parking, so you're competing, right, with parking, and that's a tough compete, right, for um, for transit. Yes, I, I just I think it's interesting uh, to look at how different yeah. cities approach it. Just like another yeah. thing, and I'm gonna move off LA and move on to Catherine and Tim. Um, they, the LAX is actually not directly on the transit line. You have to take a bus for maybe just a mile. There, just that's, that's, I think that's that ending. I think they have the connector. It's almost done. Or oh, okay. they, they have finally added that. Well, I missed it then, unfortunately, yeah. by I guess a year or yeah. two. No problem. Well, I'm going to pass I'll go ahead and pass it over to Catherine. who will pass it to Tim. If there's anything else, I may jump back in at the end. Catherine? Sure. Yeah, right. Hey, thank you for being on, and thank you for investigating these uh, big problems because it's very frustrating and sometimes ignored. I'm sitting here in Atlanta where yeah. we have the work. <clears throat> I've lived in other cities. <clears throat> I've spent quite a bit of time in Europe, and I'm just so frustrated by the transit here in Atlanta. I would be quick to use transit if it was at all convenient for me, and it's not. Um and I don't know how familiar you are with Atlanta. It sounds like you are. But I have a chapter. The, there's a chapter in the book on Atlanta. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there's there's a situation right now that's happening that has been going on for uh, about 20 years, I guess, with the Beltline. So the Beltline is right. this, you know, inner loop. I'm familiar. Of, um, okay. And when it first came about, um, I actually was lucky enough to see a presentation from the guy who came up with it. I think his name is Ryan uh, something. Ryan Gravel. And yeah. Ryan Gravel. And it was absolutely fascinating. And it was, it was really the core of it was uh, rail, you know, light rail that was going to go around in a circle mm-hmm. and you could live in one part and then jump on the rail and go to work. And then after work, you could, you know, go out to dinner or whatever and all on this, you know, inner, and it was great. I thought this is great. I want to live there. But then when they started building it, the rail got shoved aside, and 
mm-hmm. they started building all these developments. And, of course, in order to get people to live in apartments and, and come to restaurants and come to, you know, businesses, you have to have parking. So they built all these developments with all this parking. So, and I knew this was going to happen. When I watched this, I was like, okay, now when it's time for the rail, time for the transport, they're going to be like, well, we already have all this parking. So do we really need rail? Mm-hmm. And I think they're still working on it, but it's taken a long time, and we still don't have any transit. So how do we solve that? Because, I mean, I understand <laughs> the developers. They want to attract people to move into their apartments or whatever. But this was planned. Like, this, if they had done the transit yeah. first, sure, like sure. Saying, then we would be in a much better situation. So how do we solve that, and how do we convert well, – this yeah. discussion from uh, expense to investment, because that's really what it is. It's an investment. It's like the Postal Service. You know, it's not expensive. It's an investment in our, sure. you know, security. So, uh, and go, you, no. go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm going on a little. <laughs> sorry. I didn't, want, I didn't want to interrupt you. If you want, you want to finish? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, I'm fine. What do you think? Okay. So, I mean, so there's a couple issues with the Beltline, right, which is that the concept of the Beltline didn't necessarily – it wasn't coordinated with an actual, like, rail development. And, you know, versus, like, the streetcar had a whole – you know, the downtown streetcar had a whole kind of constituency pushing for it. Yeah, I know, I know. But anyway, but they didn't – so it wasn't coordinated with an actual, like, project in that way. So that's one thing. Two, um, you know – Atlanta, like all cities, requires a certain amount of parking. They're park, what are called parking minimums, right, with a development. And so the developers who you mentioned that build housing and other kinds of, like, you know, shared workspaces and all that kind of stuff, right, all these great redevelopment projects, they're providing parking because it's either required by the zoning and or to market these buildings, they have to um, offer parking to residents. Because remember, where people work, right, it's so dispersed in Atlanta right, that even if you're on the rail line, that doesn't mean that you can ride that, you know, the rail line, like Marta's system, to where your work is, right, because everything is. So someone's living downtown, that doesn't mean they're living near downtown in one of the uh, Beltline communities. doesn't mean they're working downtown. And so it's very hard to have a transit system that actually serves enough people to justify its cost. I think the other issue with the Beltline, too, is that um, there is a transportation network there that's been very successful, and that is the walking paths and biking paths. So that kind of, in a sense, kind of ate up, right, a lot of the transportation alternative um, energy, I would say, right, which is that it becomes a recreational trail. But people can use it. You have a good climate there, right? You can bike and walk in a lot of seasons versus up here in the New York area. It's a little hard. You can do it, but you have to be a little hardier. <laughs> so I think, you know, those are all like some reasons why it's, you know, it's difficult to coordinate transit. And I can tell you the research says that if you provide parking where you do have transit, like if you provide parking in, in apartment buildings, even where it's close to transit, there you won't get a lot of ridership on transit because the parking is so convenient. So, you know, even if they build, and I know there are still, there's still discussion of building this, at least a section of that light rail um, on the belt line, um, it's going to be hard to get people out of the cars because, like you say, they've got great, you know, convenient parking. So that's, that's definitely an issue. Yeah, it's uh, it's very um, – I mean, and I just I, – I felt frustrated. I, I find it frustrating because we watched it happen, right? I remember well, talking true. to it's very some public. people who yeah. were working on it. I was like, why are we doing it this way? And they were like, well, this is the way where, you know, we have to satisfy the developers, which is, you know, always – the line in Atlanta. I mean, that's like yeah. Atlanta's line. Well, the yeah, other thing you, here's oh, the other thing that's well, problematic, right? Is you could spend a lot of money on this light rail, but you're not going to get a lot of ridership because, as you know, the riders in Atlanta are south and west primarily, and some east. Um, but you know, people are very spread out. A lot of people in Clayton County. You have a lot of people who've dispersed. So a lot of that money probably would be better suited to you know bus transit. You'd probably get a lot more bang for your buck, is what I'm saying, with buses versus like yeah, oh, putting I, a little light I, rail in. I read your recent piece about um, buses, and I absolutely yeah. agree with you. I grew up in a small college town in Michigan, and we had um, a really good bus system. Now, 
but I will tell you that we invested in it. It was a, it was right. considered a um, public service. So, so right. it was it was um, supported and 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 financially supported by the city. So we had, I mean, we had great. We had a dial a ride where you just called and for two dollars you could go anywhere. Sure. You had to wait wait around and we had senior buses and then we had regular full buses. I mean, it was a small town, only like 150,000 people. So well, college towns often do well. College towns often do well in that because you have a lot of students don't have cars. So they often and, get a little, they have the, some of the best ridership numbers you see in the country are like college shuttle systems, you know, like that's often pretty Well, popular. we had both. Like we had the college yeah. shuttle system, but then we also had yeah. a, a, um, yeah a transit authority that the city ran. Yeah. So so yeah. I was I was accustomed to that and it was very um affordable and um convenient. But you know, that was a long time ago too, forty years ago. So um yeah. but I think it's really interesting also to just think about this as instead of like I said, instead of being an expense, being an investment. Because it does um open the city up, right? If you've got affordable yeah and convenient transit you have yeah you can get across town quickly you can participate be more engaged in your community um yeah and also i can tell you that seniors and yeah the research also says that for um for poor people access to transit can be a very important factor in access to work and other like needs so it actually helps. It can help good transit. I wouldn't say bad transit does this, but good transit, like you're talking about, right? Good transit can help people, uh, can reduce poverty in essence. Um, so, and there's evidence of that. So, yeah, I agree that how to see it as an investment, you know, in people and families. If you could, maybe we have to talk about it as an anti-poverty program. I mean, that was something that was in Atlanta in the debates over the creation of MARTA in the 1960s and 70s. There, was, um, there were a lot of debates about, you know, what was the right system. And, you know, Atlanta went with a rail system, you know, that served a relatively small area of the city. Primarily, it's actually the first plans pretty much served the north side, the wealthier side of town. And... Uh, as a result, you know, there was significant opposition at first, and then they, they made some concessions uh, to increase the bus service in the 1970s. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's kind of that legacy, right, which is we don't we, – we often these projects like MARTA, the rapid rail system, uh, you can look at, you know, L.A.'s Metro, you know, their, their, their investments in city image – Right and downtowns, but they don't necessarily serve the people who really, you know, the people. A lot of people don't go downtown to work and have it for decades, right? Right. And I so these systems you know, don't often work well for people. Right, and I think that that example of the Taylor Swift concert is a pretty good example of that. Sure, if we, um, I mean, I think it's great that people take Marta. I have a lot of friends who always take Marta to the airport because it's so convenient. But we can't yeah. rely on that for to support an entire transit system. We need to, like you said, we need to appeal to the, you know, working people and to everybody that, you know, wants to get across town that it's, I mean, it would be great. I I work downtown. It would be great if I could hop on a bus at lunchtime and meet a friend for lunch who's across town. But, and you can certainly do that in New York city or in Detroit or in Ann Arbor or wherever you can do that, but not, not in Atlanta. So, well, yeah. I'm well, I mean, I, thank you for thank okay. you for indulging no me in my uh, rant. No one, <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, Tim, go ahead. People have strong opinions about transit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good evening, Doctor Bloom, and thank you for being with us tonight. My uh, my pleasure. Americans love their cars. Now, now they, they do, do. You know, they. So, is there any large desire to even commit? to an upgrade of public transportation in this country right now? I mean, the only sign you see of that is the infrastructure bill provided many billions of dollars for for transit. Mm -hmm. And also transit was to sustain during the pandemic 
by the federal government. But no, I don't. I think you're absolutely right. I don't think there is now, nor has there been for a hundred years. <laughs> you know, uh, once Americans got their cars, a lot of Americans, then it's hard to get them back to transit. So I do think that I think that customer, you know, consumer choice is an important component um, of transit. The issue is right that there are a lot of people who even though they don't think they could benefit or know about it, they actually can benefit from transit. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. about a lot of older people. I'm thinking about young people. I'm thinking about people with less money. The average cost of a car is like obscene now, right? Uh, what are we mm-hmm. talking, Ten or 11000 per year? And if you need a bunch for your family, that's an enormous expense. People are car poor, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of people who would, would make an environmental choice if the transit systems were better. But where there, you know, where the choices between your car and basically a, a really substandard experience, people will always choose their car, and they will choose debt. <laughs> they will choose mm. driving when they're almost blind. They'll choose like all kinds of things like that, right? You know. Uh, yeah. But I think there there are, you know, both there are cities in the U.S. like San Francisco, Boston, New York. There are plenty of places in Europe where there's everyone. We have cars. Cars are really popular uh, all around, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't mean you can't have an option for people who would like that option. And it doesn't really cost society that much. If you mm-hmm. talk about individual mm-hmm. projects, it often sounds very expensive. But the mm-hmm. truth is that to maintain transit from, you know, both – and by the way, I'm for fares plus taxation, you know, a mm-hmm. mix of those, you can do it. It's totally possible. Well, you, you, you brought yeah, up fair. fares. You brought up fares. Uh, yeah. You you yeah. have you have stated you have written that you are not a particular fan of of especially something that was done a lot during the pandemic and that's fare free yeah. public transportation. Yeah. Why are you not a fan of that? Well, I think there are a number of liabilities of free fare. You know, while the federal government was paying all the bills, you know, you could basically you know give up whatever you know that that revenue. But the truth is, mm-hmm. transit agencies are now running out of pandemic money. And so, you know, they're facing the financial realities of agencies that have to, you know, balance their books. So it was a temporary expedient, right, during the pandemic. And now they're back to having to balance their budget. So they need that revenue. And it has not Uh been provided. There is no clear source of that revenue. Because if you even look in D.C. now, there are big debates about how they want to do free buses, right? But then they don't mm-hmm. know how to pay for it, right? So they've got to mm-hmm. cancel one tra- you know, rail project to pay for another. So who, who is going to – then the next question is who is going to fund it, right? Mm-hmm. And the truth is cities, states, and the federal government aren't interested in picking up the whole tab uh, for transit historically or even today. So I think that's another thing. I think it's a political mm-hmm. liability in some ways not to charge anything because, again, most people are drivers – they pay partly a gas tax, right, through the gas they use. And even though, yes, the roads are deeply subsidized and the rest, you know, um, there is a kind of pay-to-play component that I think voters and state legislatures and so forth, you know, expect. Like, you know, there are a lot of services like this where you pay a little something to go. On the other hand, I will say that I am for um, – I, I think it's a good idea to have a fair fare model. Right. Where Uh basically if people are literally too poor to pay, um, Mm -hmm. you know, then you either give them free or reduce costs. But the other, you know, political liability is if you have free fares, then like I'm a transit rider. But, you know, as a professor, I do fine. You're going to give me a free ride now. Ability right there. Right. Like Mm -hmm. people who can pay for transit should. And those who really can't afford it, let's create programs that sort of target right their need. And I think that's a better model for the finances of, of transit. And I think it's a better model also for um, the politics of transit. Uh-huh. Now, uh, you've also, and you've talked about it some on the show tonight, you are really a big fan of buses. Uh, I am. Are, are buses the, shall I say, the best and most affordable way for cities to upgrade their public transportation? Well, the question, yeah, so buses are in the context, it has to do with density, right? Uh Uh-huh. And for America, because we mostly don't live at very high densities, (laughs) it's usually the best option. You know, there are only a Uh few cities in the U.S. where, 
you know, you can get enough people onto rail lines to justify, right? Um, and usually you have right. to use bus feeder lines even there, right? You've got to bring them from yeah. the, on the bus to the line. So, yeah, I think in the American context, yeah, the, the bus is the best option to kind of build, right? You get, if you, put good, you have good bus service for a while, people are saying, oh, okay, this is an option. Then the nice thing about buses is if they get popular, what we see happening across the country, and I think Atlanta has some of this going on too, uh, you say, okay, we can speed up the buses. So, you know, we mm-hmm. can give them their own lane, which doesn't cost much, right? You've got wide streets in Atlanta, right? <laughs> Take a lane or two. And, you know, in certain sections that were bottlenecks, you can basically increase bus speeds. You know, have people mm-hmm. pre- pay before they get on. There's a lot of ways to make buses much faster. And so that way you can build. Because the problem with the, the rail model is, at least in the U.S. right now, it's so expensive to build anything. So it, when, you, when you start building rail, you get like one line, you know, going through one area. Maybe it's the most dense area. Maybe it's not. It could just be the right-of-ways available. And it's very hard to get enough transit riders on that line. And so what we have in a lot of the U.S. are basically, um, um, you know, lines that, you know, end in very low-density, you know, subdivisions, things like that. And so they just – they don't get enough people. So, yeah, I do mm-hmm. think buses are a great way to start transit, and then you kind of go from there. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you one more question, um, sure. and then I'm going to throw it back to David. You you have written about and, and, and studied public transportation for quite a while, and I was just wondering, where are we with public transportation in the United States? Is it, is it in crisis? Is it totally broken? <laughs> are we okay? Where are we with public transportation? Well, we're definitely right in a low point. We're in a low uh-huh. point. And, but the low point started even before the pandemic. I mean, transit was losing riders to, um, like, rideshare companies like Lyft. Uh, mm-hmm. Transit, you know, was, was having big problems. The other – you know, there were, there's a lot of like subprime auto lending going on. Um, mm-hmm. So people who used to be kind of transit riders who had less money, they could get in a car, like highly leveraged, they could get cars and things like that. So transit was already crazy. Then the pandemic comes along and, you know, you have a lot fewer people going into like central business districts who used to be on transit. So that's another mm-hmm. hit against transit. I mean, bus lines have come back okay. And that's why I'm kind of big on the bus. I mean, Bus lines, you know, again, people who are really sort of, they need the transit, very often they're, they've aligned their lives, right, around a bus line that, you know, takes them a certain place. So we've seen that in many cities like L.A., a more robust return to bus ridership than rail. So mm-hmm. that's positive, and I would say build, it is a low point, but, you know, if, if we're able to sustain these systems for a few years, you know, there's a possibility, you know, to rebuild from the buses and, and the few popular rail lines there are, uh, you can rebuild ridership. I mean, look at New York. It's actually getting pretty good. You know, everyone thought no one would ever come back to the subway. It's 75 percent. It's over 4 million people a day. And that's even with, you know, maybe the office buildings like half, you know, returned. You know, it could be bigger on the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday with people back in offices. But still, you know, where you have a robust transit network that's low cost, goes everywhere pretty fast, you know, you get a lot of riders. So we got to kind of hold, I would say that it's a low point, hold on to what we can, kind of see where things land in terms of work. I, you know, when I look at the cost, for instance, of electric vehicles, right, or you know, things mm-hmm. like that, I mean, they're so expensive. You know, the auto ownership right. has just become so expensive. And I think, you know, if we're going to meet the climate goals, we've kind of written off. It's like everything's going to be electrification, but I think that's going to be way more expensive, take way more time than people realize. So I think transit's got a, a role to play in that, but only if we save it now, right, and then, right. you know, secure the future. All right. Well, Doctor, I thank you for uh, those fine answers yeah, no to our questions. And with that, I am going to throw it back to David. David? Yes, well, Dr. Bloom, just Thank one you. more you know, typical question, and I wanted to uh, leave with something, I guess, a positive note. You know, of course we know about <laughs> Chicago and New York and how robust their systems are, um, but what's a city in America that we wouldn't expect that's doing it right, like it could be a model for other cities? 
Oh, you know who's gotten a lot of attention as as useful is look at Richmond, Virginia. Rich. They've been hmm. developing these yeah these these high speed or you know higher speed these bus systems bus rapid transit it's called. They've been having really good success there, um, and they've really they've created these these basically these bus lines that go across town in like a couple directions. They've been really they've been really working well. So I would definitely look at Richmond. So it's a you know, not far from <laughs> from Atlanta, so that's worth looking at. Um, uh, Indianapolis has had some good success with um, uh, some bus rapid transit experiments. You know, I would say look at San Francisco in the sense that they've been doing buses for a long time. Most of their riders have been on buses for a long time, and you can have good systems there uh, with that. But I definitely think for for your particular you know setup there is like uh, Richmond is an interesting one to look at. Yes, I, I would have never expected that answer. Well, Doctor Bloom, uh, I know your book, The Great American Transit Disaster. I'm sure people can purchase it wherever books are sold. Um, and Amazon is easy. Yeah, Amazon's yep. easy. And then um, the conversation we know you right there. Tell us all the places where people can. You know, access your writings if you're on social media. Just anything you'd like to share. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I'm I on LinkedIn, and you can feel free to you know uh, connect through LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on that. A little bit on Twitter, not so much. Um, and then, yeah, all the books I've got ten different books that I've either edited or written. Those are available on Amazon. Um, and then this book is also available directly from the publisher, of the University of Chicago Press, The Great American Transit Disaster. So. And I've done some other interviews lately. If people are interested in the Boston Globe, they can find them, uh, Fox, um, and Bloomberg City Lab. So if they'd like to learn more. Excellent. Well, it has been a very inf- informative and engaging interview this evening. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Dr. Right. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye. That was Dr. Nicholas Dagenbloom of Hunter College. Um, rapid transit or transit system and really urban planning expert. Uh, Interesting to have him on the show to discuss these topics tonight. Um, Well, we just have a few minutes left on the show tonight. And so let's get back into this Texas race, Colin Allred. Um, I noticed that when he did his uh, announcement video, he really made a point of you know, really, I'm just being frank about it, attacking Ted Cruz's masculinity. He talked about how Ted Cruz, you know, uh, January 6th, he ran from folks. When the uh, weather storms happened in Texas and the power grid failed, he went to Cancun. He also highlighted his past football career, both at Baylor University in-state and with the Tennessee Titans out-of-state. Catherine, did you notice that juxtaposition, and what did you make of it? Tim Catherine may be on mute. Um, I, I think the question's you I'm know, sorry, same I'm for sorry. You. I'm here. Oh, okay, okay, I'm Catherine. Here. Sorry, I, I was yes. on mute. Um, I didn't notice that, but it's an interesting tactic uh, considering – that he did get a lot of criticism for that reaction to the storms. And uh, it's kind of a, 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 I'm surprised. I I didn't notice it when I was listening to it, but I was probably distracted. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, it it might be kind of brilliant, actually. Uh, It will put him on the defensive, which is not a bad thing. So, uh, interesting. I'll have to take, take another listen to it. Well, Tim, same question, because it could have just been me noticing things or projecting. Did you uh, notice that kind of yeah, uh, thing? Well, I, I, I didn't notice the I, – I, it wasn't so much questioning the masculinity as it was just general attacks. Uh, generally, these introductory ads, people are introducing themselves to the voters. Uh, but for a couple of reasons, I think he – chose a different tack. Number one is a three-term congressman. A lot of people down there, especially in heavy population center like Dallas, Fort Worth area, already know who he is. He's been on national television a lot, done a lot of interviews, and 
Uh, I mean, for instance, we knew who 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 he was, and we're, we're in Georgia. And, and secondly, I, I as far as the attacks themselves, I think it was more of a fair game type of thing. Catherine mentioned. I mean, Cruz uh, already got a lot of criticisms for for uh, you know taking off to Mexico and you know and middle of that freeze out there and some other things he's done and said uh he's an attack dog why shouldn't he be attacked attack dogs normally don't like to be attacked i think it's a good a good thing to do and i guarantee you there's going to be some attacks coming calling all reds way too plenty of them and they're going. Right. They're going to question whether he even lives on the planet. They're going to question everything about the man. So I'm glad he's given Cruz a dose of his own medicine, and I hope he keeps doing it. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting because in the modern Republican Party is very much, um, you know, fueled by like we're the masculine party, and for Colin Allred just to you know turn that on yeah. his head. It's very easy for him to do. I mean, a professional yeah. football linebacker yeah. is probably more masculine than, you know, uh, <laughs> 90% of the planet, uh, much less Ted Cruz. And so it, it really it was an interesting tack to take. We'll see how it is. Tim, you mentioned these attacks he'll see. Do you know of anything that might just readily work, or is this going to be they're going to have to either – come up with some deep opposition research or come up with stuff out of whole cloth? Uh, I, I think uh, in, in a presidential election, first of all, they're going to try to nationalize the race, Cruz and his people. They're, they're, they're going to they're try to tie him to the liberal, communist, evil, democratic party. It's going to be that sort of a thing, and Colin Allred's a liberal, and he don't share Texas values, never mind that Cruz is from Canada and went to Harvard, you know. (laughs) We're not going to mention that. He's a good old boy, whereas Colin Allred is is not. We'll we'll see how that plays and how Allred handles it. That's why I'm kind of glad he's getting out in front of this thing a little bit right now with this introductory ad. I hope he keeps it up. Go ahead and put Cruz on the defensive. Attack, 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 because there's going to be some coming his way. Let's, you know, let, let's attack first. Yeah, and, and Catherine, I think Tim's right. It is a national race in, in, in a presidential year, and you got to think that probably um, – you start off with 80% of the voters either voted for Donald Trump and Hillary or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or Donald Trump, and they'll vote the same way in 2024. I mean, but then there's that other portion. There's new voters to Texas. There's voters that have passed away. And then there are voters that may have voted for Cruz in 2018 but have soured on him, and then some that may have voted for Beto O'Rourke and just don't like Colin Allred. I think that's where the game will be played. Any insights in where that, you know, 20% or less of the electorate is at? Well, I think that people, especially um, like the progressive wing of the party, as as people like to refer to it, like it when uh, candidates are um, outspoken and stand up to their Republican um, opponents. So, I think that this first uh, out-of-the-gate um, attacking attack <clears throat> mode is good. It, it gets people, you know, riled up. It, it, it engages people. It may help in fundraising. Uh, so I think that's good. And as far as all the, you know, who voted for who before, I think we just have to wait and see how things go for uh, Ted Cruz going forward, and and how uh, Mr. Allred comes up, you know, how that all works. So I, I think, but I think that this is a good start for a candidate that needs to get some, you know. I mean, obviously we know who he is, but we're gonna he's gonna need some more uh, visibility, and I think this is a good way to get it. 
Yeah, I don't think fundraising is going to be a problem for Colin Allred um, because, really, there's just very few other ball games in town other than defense. Um, and so, therefore, if you want to play offense, Colin Allred's your best shot. And plus, he's running against somebody that's not real likable in Ted Cruz to start off with. Well, um, thanks again to Dr. Nicholas Dagan-Bloom for coming on the show and sharing about his book. Next week, we're going to have coming back for the second time on the show, Milan Singh. Milan has been at a Yale University all year. He's written some political columns um, for the Yale newspaper, and he still works as slow and boring as well. So we're going to discuss all kind of political issues next week on the show with Milan. But until next week, Kudzuvan. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has